Many of the ropes are too close to the railings. Some are too close to each other. The front four ropes are almost in a straight line, making rope sight difficult. Finally, there is that large drop behind you, just the other side of the railings, to mess with your mind. So have you guessed where Stuart Piper is talking about? You will find out in this episode, which is a follow-up to last month's episode on weird and wonderful bell towers. We start with the observation that you have to concentrate to ring a court appeal. Simon Head tells us of a court appeal outing to a church with distractions. St Mary Magdalene, Cottingham, Northamptonshire, where the pulley goes grrrr. I arrived at Cottingham on a court appeal outing with some ringing friends. When we arrived, a couple of them started laughing and they apologised for having brought me here. They had run at the tower previously and hadn't made the connection when they'd requested the tower for a court appeal. They warned me that the three had a very loud pronounced comedy pulley noise of backstroke. The church has a ground floor ringing room behind the screened partition and the third was duly rung partially up to demonstrate the very loud pulley noise of backstroke. The reason the pulley noise was so apparent was primarily because the bells were very, very quiet in the ringing chamber. Another problem is that the treble was standing underneath behind a ladder, a sloping ladder that gives access to a trapdoor where you gain access to the belfry. On ascending the ladder to see if we could open the trapdoor to gain a little bit more volume in the ringing room, we discovered that the pulley boss for the treble was fixed to the trapdoor and the rope for the treble went through the middle of the trapdoor. To make matters worse, the trapdoor was hinged, so that meant the trapdoor couldn't just be lifted straight up, so opening the trapdoor and ringing was completely out of the question. We managed to achieve something of a compromise by wedging a couple of hymn books under the edge of the trapdoor, allowing it to open slightly and not impede the path of the treble rope as it fell through the trapdoor and through the ladder down to the treble ringer. We set off for the quarter peel and had a false start, primarily because of the loud growling pulley, which was causing great hilarity, as it had impeccable timing, often going grrrr at the same moment as a call was made. We set off again at a brisk pace, aware that we did have a deadline because a wedding was taking place in the church in about an hour's time. About halfway through the court appeal, people had learned to ignore the growling pulley, but started to go wrong repeatedly and often, and needed more and more correction to stay on the line. Once put right, they would go wrong again almost immediately. I was getting more and more frustrated at everybody's inability to ring what was a relatively simple doubles method. Finally, we got to the end of the court appeal, and I discovered that the problem had been arriving wedding guests. I was on the fifth, and so my back was to the gap in the screen, but everyone else could see people looking round the screen, waving, taking photographs, holding up babies, smiling and talking to each other and commenting on the ringing, all of which I was oblivious to. Simon also sent us a recording of the Cottingham Bells.
Next, we hear of several belfries which are difficult to access. First, David Sparling tells us about an unusual tower in Essex. St George's Church, Great Bromley, in rural northeast Essex. St George's Church has entered via the 15th century south porch, which leads into the nave, covered with a magnificent double hammer beam roof. As you step into the base of the tower, look up to the collection of hats from previous tower captains dating back to 1716, which are fixed high up on the wall just beneath the ringing room floor. Entry to the tower is via the usual low wooden door and a traditional stone spiral staircase. Traditional, that is, except for the fact that it does not properly meet up with the ringing room door, so you have to climb past this and then step back across a huge oak beam. This has put off more than one visitor, but for those that do brave the leap, the 1500 weight peel of six is well worth the visit. Another that might be worth the visit is Pershaw Abbey. Stuart Piper enlightens us. Pershaw Abbey, the Abbey Church of the Holy Cross. The telephone rings and you answer. The voice at the other end, you recognise it as someone you regularly ring with, says, hi, I've got a tower for a court appeal in a couple of weeks' time. Would you like to ring? Where, you ask, wondering how far you would have to travel this time. Oh, Pershaw Abbey, do you just nonchalantly say, yes, please? Do you hesitate while your mind races, some niggling thought saying to you, you have heard about Pershaw Abbey, haven't you? Maybe your reply is an instant, no, thank you, because you know about Pershaw Abbey, even though it is the last over-the-ton eight-bell tower to tick off in your dove's guide. So, what is so special about Pershaw Abbey? Outside, the building wears its history for all to see. It is the shadow of its former self, with obvious signs of where the church used to be part of a large monastic establishment. Two buttresses now support the tower on the west side, because the original nave has gone. The north transept has a simple sloping roof, because it had to be rebuilt. All around the tower, there are lines where the roofs of buildings now long gone used to connect to it. Yes, that is quite special. Inside, entering through the west door, you look towards the altar. Your eye is caught as the building soars up past the arches, past the clerestory windows, to the vaulting above. Yes, that is quite special too. The online dove will tell you that there are eight bells in the tower, originally cast in 1729 by Abraham Ruddle II, with two recasts, treble 1814 by Mears, the 4th, 1897 by Barwell. The tenor weight is stated as 25 and a half hundredweight. I can tell you that they are old style bells. They're not Simpson tuned. They're not all in tune. The back bells growl at you rather than sing sweetly. They can be a challenge to ring. Special? Well, different. But then every tower is different. That is the joy of ringing, the variation between each church and each ring of bells. The access route to the tower starts at the door in the corner of the south transept. A spiral staircase takes you up, and at the top you duck through a low opening. A few straight steps, and you're on a walkway built within the roof timbers. You're above the vaulting, 
but under the tiled roof. It's something you don't see very often, so that makes it interesting. At the end of the walkway, down a couple of steps and through another door. Now you're in a passage with occasional views down into the abbey. To your right is another spiral staircase to climb, and then you're confronted with a tunnel. For you, it may not be quite tall enough, so you have to bend down. It may also be not quite wide enough, so you have to twist and crab your way along. Luckily, it's not very far. Once you can stand up again, you can see that you are at the foot of a short stairway. A quarter turn of ten open-tread cast-iron steps, launching out over the void below. Oh. My. God. You can't be serious. Step out. Step up. A few more steps, and you're on a walkway on top of one of the beams supporting the ringing platform ahead of you. It's okay. There are high railings and a good strong wire mesh above it to keep you secure. But put your head between the railings, if you dare, and look down. Don't those people seem small from up here, 72 feet above the floor below? So this is what Dove meant by rung from cage above chancel crossing. How did this arrangement come about? In 1864, the architect George Gilbert Scott was tasked with the restoration of the abbey, During that work, he decided to remove the original tower floor, opening up the lantern tower to let in more light down into the church. But what to do with the ringers? Imagine the square of the tower. Now put in two big timber beams spanning the tower east-west and north-south, dividing the plan of the tower into four smaller squares. Now place further timbers diagonally between the main support timbers, Cover them over to make a platform and install railings so no one falls off. Voila, the ringing cage at Pershore Abbey. It's not ideal. Many of the ropes are too close to the railings. Some are too close to each other. The front four ropes are almost in a straight line, making rope sight difficult. Finally, there is that large drop behind you, just the other side of the railings, to mess with your mind. I always say that ringing at Pershore Abbey is mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Personally, I don't mind. On the other hand, if you do mind, then you'll have to decline that court appeal invitation and leave Pershore Abbey unticked in your dove's guide. Maybe one that you will want to tick off is the following tower that Neil Dodge describes, so long as you trust the ladder. Great Livermere, Suffolk. One of the towers I look after, Great Livermere in Suffolk, is particularly unusual and may be of interest to your listeners. To access the bells, ringers have to scale a substantial 25-foot-tall wooden ladder from the base of the tower. And if this wasn't daunting enough, the ladder is handily dated with the year it was made, 1681, making this possibly the oldest ladder still in use. It would be interesting to know if anyone is aware of an older example. The interesting access has earned the tower the nickname Great Ladermere. Once you've scaled the ladder, the ringing room is equally interesting. The walls are adorned with graffiti ranging back hundreds of years, including witch marks around the windows and possibly some dates inscribed before 1681, meaning that we could say that this is the new ladder at a mere 339 years old. 
There's also a wonderful pencil drawing of a man in a double-breasted suit and trilby hat, along with some court appeal records and a note that says, Mr A. Cutter broke a stay 8th of May 1956. I'm sure he was never allowed to forget that. All in all, an interesting experience. The bells themselves are quite pleasant, being a complete 1762 Ring of Five by Leicester and Pack, weighing approximately 600 weight. The bells are nearly always available and visitors are very welcome. Next, Alison Davis reads from Ernest Morris's book on bells and towers in Britain. She reads about the early history of what may be the first peal of bells in a church in England. It is interesting to hear how bells' names have changed and were funded. These bells have the longest draught in the UK with 90 foot of unguided rope. The piece also details belfry accidents with narrow escapes for the people around them. This is a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Association of Ringing Teachers, ART. You can find out more at bellringing.org where there are resources to support your ringing, to find out how to learn to ring or to learn to teach. Now back to the episode. There is a tradition for the truth of which I cannot vouch. that Croyland Abbey was the first church in England to possess a peal of bells. Be that as it may, we find that Tukechi, the sixth abbot, 946 to 976, cast a great bell for the abbey and named it Guthlac, to whom the abbey is dedicated. Egelric, his nephew and successor, 975 to 984, added six more bells, two large ones named Bartholomew and Betelin, two middle ones named Ketty and Tatwin, and two smaller ones named Pegger and Beggar. Abbot Ingolf, the chronicler, says that when these seven bells were rung, an excellent harmony was produced thereby, nor was there such a peal of bells in those days in all England. The sound of Guthac was said by Fuller to be a remedy for headache. Those bells hung in the central tower until 1091, when a fire broke out in the belfry and they were totally destroyed. Ingolf, going to the door and trying to enter, had a narrow escape from being killed by the molten metal which poured down from above. This fire was caused by a plumber who had been preparing lead for repairs to the roof of the tower and had foolishly left his embers covered up for the next day. Nearly the whole abbey was consumed thereby. After the fire, the monks set to work immediately to rebuild their abbey. No sooner was the calamity known than the neighbouring towns and villages sent relief in money, food, building materials and other commodities. Among these, Fergus the coppersmith of Boston gave two metal skillets or pans which were suspended in a temporary belfry and which gave a certain amount of resonance when struck. Ingolf replaced the books, vestments, bells and other requisites before his death in 1109. Abbot Ralph Mursk, 1253-1281, erected a detached bell tower at the east end of the church which was called the Outward Belfry. Abbot John de Ashby, who died in 1392, gave the large bells hanging in this structure. In 1405, there were four sweetly sounding bells hanging in the tower behind the choir. These were repaired in the year by Abbot Thomas Overton. In the time of Abbot John Lingleton, 1427 to 1469, the great bells in the outer steeple were recast in order that it might be brought into a state of more perfect harmony. 
In this work, the monks were assisted by John Lester, a brother of the monastery, who in 1463, induced by pious considerations, contributed 40 marks towards the work. What became of those bells in the outer steeple of the dissolution is not known. It was in 1465 that the abbot John Littlington, in order that nothing might remain undone which is considered to tend to increase of the praise of God, caused five fine and choice bells to be cast at London and substituted for the three old ones, one gone since 1405, here in the central tower, to send forth their sweet sounds with their harmonious chimes. The cost of these, together with the expense of the carriage, by land and water, amounting in all to £160, was defrayed entirely by himself. They were inscribed from the smallest to the greatest with the names of patron saints, in whose honour they were most devoutly dedicated, the names being Guthlac, Bartholomew, Michael Mary and Trinity. It is further related that a great beam which was being raised in the great bell tower, which had been newly built in the western part of the church in which it was intended that the bells just mentioned should be hung, fell down, doing much damage and jeopardising the lives of the workmen, all of whom, however, escaped. And now Steve Johnson reads us a hair-raising tale which was sent to us by Roy Le Marichal. This is a story about a failed peel attempt at Inverary back in August 1966. The bells were shortly to be restored, but this peel attempt took place just prior to this, when the tower was in poor condition. The floor of the ringing room was so bad that some of the band would not set foot in it. The decision was made to ring in the concrete room upstairs, making the bells very loud. Due to the noise levels, the ringers opted to ring the simplest method possible – playing Bob Royal. The late Graham Elms was a ringer in the band and recalled his experience. I was ringing the fifth or sixth and after about 45 minutes of reasonable ringing, the cast iron ceiling boss with a few pounds of concrete still attached slid down my rope a backstroke, knocked it out of my hands, lacerating my knuckles and smashed on the floor, sending bits of broken concrete across the room. My recollection is that, knowing what had happened, I manfully regained my rope and got the bell under control and rejoined the ringing. Philip Mehew, who was calling the peal from the tenor, was screaming instructions at the top of his voice, which was a bit useless because by then a couple of the band, led by George Bonham, had already set their bells and were fighting to get out of the door. For the final section of this episode, we hear about bell towers where the ropes aren't in an ideal position. Here, Helen Nichols describes a very old church where the organ is in the middle of the bell ropes. Hickleton, the church with the skulls. St Wilfrid's Church, Hickleton, Doncaster, South Yorkshire, is a Grade 1 listed building. Excavations date the existing building back to 1150 AD, but there are also suggestions of a church on this location in Saxon times. The church and its lands were a gift to the Priory of Monk Breton by the Archbishop Neville of York. In 1386, the lynch gate contains three human skulls set behind a grill. Above are the words, Today for me, tomorrow for thee. The crossroads which face the church is where many ghostly sightings have been reported. The tower is perpendicular in style and built from typical South Yorkshire magnesium limestone and sandstone. Housed in the tower are three delightful little bells dated 1676 which are rung by long ropes from the ground floor. The ropes fall around the organ in a restricted area, 
requiring mirrors to allow the ringers to see each other. Very exciting trying to ring while the organist plays a few inches from your rope. Good rope control is needed at all times. Definitely a challenge trying to ring looking in mirrors and avoiding disturbing the organist too. Next, Steve Johnson reads from a report that we have been sent about unusual bell towers in the London area. Steve Jakeman from London reported, As bell restoration officer for the Middlesex County Association and London Diocesan Guild of Bell Ringers, I have been privileged to visit most of the towers and bell chambers in the former county of Middlesex and the City of London. Every installation is different, and I have selected five that are more unusual. In the City of London, we have St Mary Woolnoth, near Bank Station. The three bells, cast between 1670 and 1672 by William Eldridge, predate the building, which is a Hawksmoor church, built in 1716. They're not a true three by any stretch of the imagination. The 200-weight treble hangs in its own frame at the north end of the shoebox-shaped tower, while the 4.5-weight second and the 13.5-weight tenor hang in a separate frame to the south. Moving west, we have the notable Taylor Ring of Ten, with a tenor of some 3,800-weight hung way up in the Queen's Tower at Imperial College in Kensington. There are 239 steps to reach the ringing chamber, and the tower has significant movement, not helped by the demolition of adjacent buildings, and the ringing is challenging. North of Heathrow Airport, there is, or will be, a ring of six at West Drayton, a restoration project that started in the 1920s and remains to be completed. Only the new tenor, an 1800-weight bell cast in 1932, hangs ringable in the new frame. The other bells languished in a shed in the far corner of the churchyard until 2013, when it was noticed that one had vanished. The remaining bells were then placed for safety in the tower beside the tenor. To the east of the city, at St John of Jerusalem, South Hackney, a ring of eight with a 1900-weight tenor, the drive rods from the clock to its three faces cross the centre of the ringing chamber. Despite the fact that the rods are only one inch in diameter, they're boxed in by a large T-shaped wooden structure about a foot wide and a foot high, which you have to climb over to reach six of the eight bell ropes, but it's a handy seat when you're sitting out during a practice. Finally, there's the old church of St Mary, Stoke Newington, where there's a ring of six bells. Not only are they rung from a second-floor gallery, but the ropes are arguably in a straight line, and they fall in the order one, two, six, five, four, three. Finally, Helen Nichols tells us about an old church with a remarkable history where the bell ropes aren't ideally placed. St Michael and All Angels, Scalebrook, Doncaster, South Yorkshire, a lovely little church standing in peaceful surroundings. It is not sure when the church was built, but the village itself is mentioned in the Doomsday Book in 1086. In 1338, there is a record of an ordination in the chapel of St John the Evangelist. The parish includes part of the ancient forest of Barnsdale, the celebrated haunts of Robin Hood. Robin Hood's well near Skelbrook is the earliest known place name associated with the outlaw. A fire in 1870 destroyed the church. It was rebuilt and reopened in 1872. The tower itself was rebuilt in the 19th century, retaining much of its original stone. Two of the three bells in the tower are medieval and a third was added much later in 1730. 
The three bells are rung by long ropes on the ground floor. The three ropes hang in a straight line with the ropes falling in order 132. Ringing is a challenge with the heater pipes around the floor area, with ringers deciding if to straddle the pipes or face the wall. Facing the wall comes with its risks of not attaching your rope to a pipe. It's lovely to ring and watch the bride and her father entering into a wedding, but with them inches away from your rope it's always a nervous time. It's more scary when little excited bridesmaids go out, so you're careful you don't lasso them either. I hope you've enjoyed these recollections. As always, my thanks go to Leslie Belcher, Anne Tansley Thomas and John Gwynne for their ongoing assistance with the podcast. Thanks go to Sue Hall for the original Fun With Bells artwork and the Cambridge Youths for the recording of their ringing. And a special thanks for this episode goes to Rose Nightingale for coordinating the collection of these recordings and to Steve Johnson for his technical expertise. And many thanks to all the people who submitted their readings and made the recordings. (laughs) 